Pastor David Jones. Welcome to my sermon archives. For more audio sermons, books, blog posts, and other goodies, visit www.pastordavidwentz.com. That's spelled W-E-N-T-Z. And follow me on Facebook or LinkedIn. I pray God speaks to you as you listen. Yes. Okay. Well, praise the Lord. Let's start with our key verse found in the bulletin. Deuteronomy 6.24 The Lord our God commanded us to obey all these decrees and to fear Him so He can continue to bless us and preserve our lives as He has done to this day. Deuteronomy 6.24 We are in the third week of a 16-week series called The River of Life going through the Bible from front to back and We have looked at creation and the kind of prehistorical section, uh, the flood and the Tower of Babel. That was the first Sunday, and we also looked at why we are studying the Bible. Last week, we looked at basically the book of Genesis from Abraham through Joseph and the Israelites coming into Egypt as slaves. God chooses a people because he found that working with a whole human race didn't work out. That's why he had to destroy them once with a flood and then divide their language, divide them up by, by giving them different languages. And he chose one family to start with and say, I'll get to know them. They'll get to know me. They can demonstrate the blessings of following my way. And then all the rest of them will see that and be attracted and want to follow me. He said, let's, let's try working it that way. And so uh, that was the family of Abraham uh, who became the Israelites, the 12 tribes of Israel, the 70 who went down into Egypt at the end of Jacob's life. And today as we pick up, they've been there 430 years in Egypt. They've grown and increased uh, largely the, the uh, original Pharaoh had set them off in a certain part of the land uh, by themselves. They weren't scattered throughout Egypt. They were all in the, the one area where they took care of the sheep and the livestock because the Egyptians didn't like to do that and the Hebrews did. So they, they had this area and uh, grew and developed and they, they became so big and strong that when the one of the first pharaohs of the 18th dynasty came into power. He didn't know the history of Joseph and everything. He just saw all of these people on the border there and, and uh, on the edge, but within the borders of Egypt. And he said, they're getting stronger and more numerous than we are. We better do something about it while we still can. And they enslaved the Hebrews. And they still continued to grow and develop. And so... Uh, Pharaoh, we don't know if it was the same one or another one uh, who followed, but said, they, we got to put a stop to this. They're going to outnumber us. And so he issued a decree that all of the male babies should be killed. Moses was born. And his mother, the time came for him to be killed. His mother didn't want to kill him, as, as of course none of the mothers did. But she found a way to hide him, you all know the story, made a little basket and coated it with tar and put him in it and and, uh, set him floating on the river out where she knew 
that Pharaoh's daughter would come down to uh, take her morning uh, bathing and so on. And of course, the, the, the Pharaoh's daughter found the baby and said, oh, this, isn't this a cute baby? I wonder, you know, we, we, we got to save this baby and who can I find to take care of it? Well, Moses' mother had sent his big sister down to watch and she jumps out and says, oh, I know a woman that can nurse him for you. And it turned out that Moses' mother was hired to nurse him until he was old enough and then he was raised in Pharaoh's uh, palace, became a young man, went out to see how things were going with his people because, of course, his mother and father had kept in touch with him and he knew who he was. He saw an Egyptian and an Israelite fighting and he hit the Egyptian to, to try and save the Israelite, killed the Egyptian, found out this was known, and he fled into the wilderness. And he was in Midian for a long time, and until probably 50, 60 years. He winds up, he's 80 years old, and he's just a shepherd out there. And he feels like he's done nothing with his life, and he's walking by and he sees a bush and the bush is on fire and it's not burning and turns out God is in the bush and God calls him and says, I want you to go back to Pharaoh and tell him to let my people go. And Moses pushes back some. He says, I, you know, who am I to do this? And, uh, and God says, you just go. And uh, he gave him a, a sign. He said, throw your stick down on the ground and it turns into a snake. And then picked up the snake and it turns back into a stick. So Moses and his brother Aaron go to Pharaoh and they say, God says, let my people go. And Pharaoh says, who's God? And, and Moses says, God is the one who does this. And he throws his stick down and it turns into a snake. Doesn't convince Pharaoh. So increasing number of plagues. Uh, you all know the story. God says, uh, all right, just to prove to Pharaoh who I am, I'm going to send, you go down to the, the river and hit it with your staff and it'll turn, the water will turn into blood. And he does, and there's blood all over and they have to dig wells to get fresh water until it all clears out. And Pharaoh's not convinced. So then a series of plagues, frogs and gnats and flies and then the, the livestock die, but not, not the livestock in the Hebrews' land. So it's very clear that it's the God of the Hebrews who is doing this, and the gods of the Egyptians are not strong enough to stop it. All the Egyptians' livestock dies, and that not only proves which God, or at least you'd think it would prove, demonstrates which God is the real God, but it also means all the Egyptians have to go to the Hebrews and pay whatever price they're asking to get some livestock, to replace the livestock that, that died. So already the transfer of wealth is beginning. But that doesn't convince Pharaoh. So all Egyptians develop boils. There comes a hail that, that uh, destroys all of the crops that are there, that are, 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 are sprouted. Still doesn't convince them. So after a while, the other crops have sprouted and locusts come and destroy all of those. Still not convinced. A, a plague of darkness on the land during the middle of the day. 
And in Still Not Convinced and Finally, what Ashlyn read for us about the death of the firstborn. A foreshadowing of the sacrifice of Jesus, who was the firstborn of God, who was crucified at Passover 1,500 years, more, roughly 1,500 years later. The Passover lamb. The, the blood of the lamb was put on the door so the death angel would see that and pass over and not kill them. The blood of Jesus is applied so that we don't have to die because we're under the blood of Jesus, the Lamb of God. Somebody says, how could God kill all of those innocent firstborn children? That's a good question. And I would say first, we believe that all babies and children younger than some age of understanding, which is probably different for each person, they're automatically covered by the blood of Jesus and go to heaven. First Peter 2.9 says, God doesn't want anyone to die. He wants everyone to be saved. And he wants that so much that he gave the life of his own son to provide a way for people to be saved from the death that they brought on themselves. The human race, we can never forget the human race brought this death on ourselves. God gave his son Jesus to rescue us from that. Now for those who are old enough to understand, they have to choose to provide the, to, to follow the way that God provided. But for the young ones, we believe God gives them the benefit of the doubt. Second, in the Passover instructions, God says what to do for the non-Jewish people that are visiting with you. And they are, they share in the Passover meal the same way. And our reading says a lot of non-Jewish people followed along with Moses and the Israelites when they left Egypt. The implication is that anyone who saw all these plagues and saw how the Israelites were spared from them, anyone, Egyptian or whoever, could have decided that, hey, maybe this God of Israel really is the true God. And they could have gone to an Israelite and asked to stay with them for the night. Or maybe even painted their own door with the Lamb's blood. And the angel would have passed over them as well. Because again, God doesn't want anyone to die. He wants everyone to be saved and go to heaven, but he doesn't force it on anyone. If you refuse to believe after nine plagues, maybe you deserve what happens to you. So they leave Egypt. They plunder the Egyptians. They take all the wealth with them. And again, the mixed multitude that followed them, uh, God accepted anyone who believed and followed him. As he still does. So they come to the Red Sea. The... Uh, You've all seen a movie with the parting of the Red Sea, right? You all know that story. The, the Egyptian army is coming. Somebody was, uh, a skeptic was talking to somebody, uh, to a Christian believer about this, and the believer was talking about it, and he said, oh, it's a miracle, it's a miracle. And the skeptic says, oh, it's not a miracle. I read where they think maybe a sandbar built up right there, and, and the water was only two inches high, and they just walked across that. And the believer says, oh, really? Wow, it's a miracle, it's a miracle. And the skeptic says, well, how do you mean it's a miracle? 
And the believer says, the entire Egyptian army drowned in two inches of water. Even if it was a sandbar or some kind of a natural, naturally explainable phenomenon, it's a miracle of timing. Anyway, one way or another, they get off in, uh, over the Red Sea. They're being led by God in a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire at night. And the people get out into the wilderness, into the desert, and God doesn't take them straight up the coast to where they could enter into the promised land in about three days. Because he knows these are a bunch of escaped slaves. They're not an army. They're just going to be fat pickings for anybody that comes along, any of the nomadic tribes in the area. So he takes them out into the desert, and there's nothing to eat there. And so, of course, he brings manna, the miracle of the manna that appears every morning and uh, water out of a rock and various miracles of of providing food, quail, manna, and and so on. They go on, uh, Jethro, uh, Moses' father-in-law, comes, gives them some good advice about delegation, how he can... Uh, spread out the job of dealing with all of these people. God leads them to Mount Sinai. They spend a couple of years at Mount Sinai. Uh, Overall. But they get there, they set up camp. God comes down on the mountain and he says, uh, send Moses up here, nobody else touch the mountain. Moses, come on up. And he, he gives Moses the law. He gives Moses detailed plans for building the tabernacle, how God wants to be worshipped. And Moses is up there for 40 days talking to God, getting all these plans. It's extensive. You can read about it in, in the book of Exodus. While he's gone, the people start to get antsy. They start Wondering what's going on, this guy, this Moses that led us out, he's gone up on the mountain, we haven't seen him, it's been three weeks, where is he? And they go to Aaron and they say, Aaron, do something. And, you know, we need another God. We've never even seen this God that Moses keeps talking about, except for that that strange cloud. And so they all bring Aaron uh, their gold, gold earrings and so on, And Aaron, for some reason I can't figure out, makes it into an idol of a golden calf and then tells the people that it all just kind of popped up by itself and this is their God and they all start dancing around and worshiping this golden calf and having a big pagan kind of a wild party. And Moses comes down and he sees it. And he gets so mad. God has given him the Ten Commandments, which Derek read for us, written out on the stone tablets. Moses gets so mad, he throws them on the ground and breaks them. And God's mad, and he says, Moses, get out of the way. I'm going to wipe them all out, and I'll start over with you. And Moses says, don't do that. Please don't do that, God, because what's everybody going to say? They're going to say you were unable to take care of them. And they came out here and they died. And they're not going to believe in you. So Moses intercedes and and God says, okay, you're right. I've changed my mind. It's amazing how many times in the Bible, if you look for it, God says, I've changed my mind in response to people's prayer. 
So he gives Moses a new copy of the law. They build the tabernacle, and that reaches the end of the book of Exodus. Now, next book is Leviticus. Anybody ever tried to read the Bible through from the beginning to the end? Hmm? Yeah? And how many of you got bogged down in Leviticus? Yeah, because it's nothing but laws. Only person in here probably who could get through that book without falling asleep would be David, because he's a lawyer. So he can read the laws. But this is just laws. Whole book of laws, mainly religious rituals. And the next book is Numbers, which is lots of genealogy. And uh, then some more rituals and, and some history during the 40 years from Sinai to the Promised Land. Now, again, it only takes, what, a, a few days, even from Sinai, a couple of weeks maybe, to get to the Promised Land. But they, they just... God had to deal with them, and it took that long. And so they're building the tabernacle, they're getting organized, they, it tells the time story about the people complaining, uh, you know, they, they, got, they got tired of the manna, and you can kind of understand, I mean, they got manna cakes for breakfast, manna soup for lunch, manna burgers for supper, and you know what they had for dessert, right? But manna splits. So they're complaining, so God sends a bunch of quail, and they eat the quail, and then right following on the quail, a bunch of them get sick and, and die, and they, they finally, after the end of the 40 years, all of the complainers have died out. It's their children, the young ones who came out of Egypt with them, and uh, they get to the edge of the promised land, and Moses sends out spies, one from each of the 12 tribes to go across the Jordan River into the promised land and spy it out and see what it's like so they can plan their move in to the land that God has promised them. Spies go out, they come back, and it is indeed a land flowing with milk and honey and huge uh, clusters of grapes and all this fruit and everything. And they bring, it says one cluster of grapes they had to have uh, put on a, a staff and have two people carry it on a rod. And they get back and they say, yeah, but the ten of the spies say, yeah, but the people are just as big. The people are huge. they got walled cities. They've got uh, bows and arrows and swords and spears and they're, they're huge and we look like grasshoppers next to them and all the people say, oh no, let's choose a new leader and go back to Egypt. And God starts in to wipe them all out again, and Moses intercedes again and says, Don't, 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 please, Lord. What will it look like? All the other nations will think that you're unable to save. So then the, the people say, Okay, okay, we will. We will go in. And Moses says, It's too late. But they try to go in and they get destroyed and, you know, defeated and go, go running. Well, I'm sorry, I said 40 years. This was at the beginning, right after two years in Sinai, they go there. And that's when they have to spend the 38 years for that whole generation that rebelled to die. Because they go back and, and uh, there's one of the leaders that comes and says, Moses, who made you in charge? And Moses, well, you know, God did Korah says, yeah, but, but uh, 
we're all just as good as you are. And so Moses sets up, a, you know, everybody that's with Korah stand over here and everybody that's with me stand over here. And the people with Korah, earth opens up under them and swallows them up. And so then 40 years in the wilderness until that generation died, there's various battles and miraculous signs. And they finally come ready to go into the promised land. And Moses is now 120 years old. And God's told him he won't cross the promised land. Two and a half of the 12 tribes say, you know, the land over here on this side of the Jordan River is pretty good. And so Moses allows them to have the land there as long as their soldiers go on and help the rest of them. Joshua's appointed Moses' successor and the book of Deuteronomy is Moses' last speech in which he recaps all of the, the law and some of the things that happened and encourages them before turning it over to Joshua. And we'll pick it up with Joshua next week. But what do we learn from all of this? Because I just skipped real quickly over much of the, the many of the pages in here, all the law and the ritual pages. You know, I didn't try to summarize them. Uh, you heard the Ten Commandments. You're familiar with that. But there are all kinds of laws in there. And what I get out of all of this, there's, there's lots that you can learn from each of these little incidents. But from looking at the whole thing, it's about freedom, being set free from slavery in Egypt, and it's about law. And a lot of people look at freedom and law as opposites. They say, if I have to follow a bunch of laws, I don't have freedom. If I'm free, that means I don't have to worry about laws. But freedom and law are not opposites. Law allows freedom. Let me give you an illustration. You're in a car and you want to drive someplace. And if you're driving in a car, you're on a road. And the road seems to restrict you. You can either go that way or you can turn around 180 degrees and go this way. But that's about the only place you can go on a road, especially one of these roads around here where they drop off to the side and it's all trees and everything. So you would say, boy, is that restrictive. I can either only go that way or this way. And if I'm going this way and I want to go that way, I have to drive 12 miles before I find a place I can turn around and go back. That doesn't sound like freedom, but think about it a minute. Say you want to go to Springfield. If you use the roads, if you stay on the roads, if you restrict yourself to the roads, you can get from here to Springfield in two and a half hours with three to five other people and a whole cargo with you for about $20 worth of gas. If you didn't have the road, you would be free to get to Springfield any way you wanted to but all those passengers and cargo and everything getting across the mountains and through the woods and over the streams, it'd probably take you a week. And you'd be camping out, you've got all the food and supplies for all of that. And the road gives you the freedom to get to Springfield in two and a half hours for 20 bucks. The law gives you the freedom to do the things that 
are good and right and to be free from the interference of other people trying to stop. And somebody says, wait a minute, preacher. Are you saying we need to follow all those Old Testament laws? No more ham sandwiches? And I have to sacrifice a dove every time I do something wrong? Well, first off, if you know something's wrong, you shouldn't do it. So the doves ought to be all right. But, but no, you don't have to sacrifice a dove. And you see, there are, all, there are three kinds of laws here in the Bible. And they're all pretty much mixed together. There are religious laws. There are civil laws. And there are moral laws. The religious laws are all about the the sacrificial system and the washing and the clean and unclean foods and and being clean or unclean because you touched this or that, you know, dead animal or whatever. But mainly the thing most of us think about when we think about the Old Testament religious laws is the animal sacrifice. And that doesn't sound very humane to us. It doesn't sound like our idea of God. Part of the problem is God doesn't restrict himself to our idea of God and what we often think, mean when we, when we say that, whether we believe it or, or realize it or not, is if I was God, I wouldn't do things that way. But see, you're not God. He is, and he does things the way he does for a good reason. Everything God does is for a good reason of wisdom and love. And we just have to take it by faith that if we don't understand it now, we will one day. But the point of the animal sacrifice is it points to the seriousness of sin. Not only the blood, but the expense. I mean, bulls are expensive. You have to sacrifice a bull because you committed some sin, you're going to think about it. But the religious laws. While we can learn from them, they're instructive to us. It was fulfilled by Jesus. When he died on the cross, he said, it is finished. He fulfilled it. So we don't have to. Hebrews 10, 1-4 says, The old system under the law of Moses was only a shadow, a dim preview of the good things to come, not the good things themselves. The sacrifices under that system were repeated again and again, year after year, but they were never able to provide perfect cleansing for those who came to worship. If they could have provided perfect cleansing, the sacrifices would have stopped, for the worshipers would have been purified once for all time, and their feelings of guilt would have disappeared. But instead, those sacrifices actually reminded them of their sins year after year. For it is not possible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. So Christ has now become the high priest over all the good things that have come. He has entered that greater, more perfect tabernacle in heaven, which was not made by human hands. And with his own blood, not the blood of goats and calves, he entered the most holy place once for all time and secured our redemption forever. The law is necessary so that we will know why we need God's grace. 
so that we will know that even with it all laid out exactly step by step what we're supposed to do, we still can't do it. We still can't be perfect. We still can't avoid sin. You don't want to be saved if you don't know what you need to be saved from. The law demonstrates that for us. Jesus fulfilled the religious law of animal sacrifices and replaced it with the law of love. Romans 13.10 says, Love does no wrong to others, so love fulfills the requirements of God's law. So that's the main part of those, the burnt offerings and everything. But another thing to recognize is that what do you think happened to all the meat when they burnt those animals on the altar? Well, people got to eat it. When they had an offering like that, there were just a very few that had to be burnt completely up. But all the rest of them, it was, it was basically a big barbecue. So there's the religious law, there's the civil law, which was just the rules for the political nation of Israel. Uh, uh, your longhorn cow gets out of your field and goes and stabs somebody's heifer. Who pays for what? You know, the person that that belong that the, the, the longhorn steer belongs to is responsible to pay the price of the heifer, but he gets to keep the dead heifer. You know, those kinds of rules are in the Bible. Uh, the civil laws. And the moral laws, the attitudes and the behavior that demonstrate the kingdom of God, that demonstrate heaven on earth, the Ten Commandments. Now we need to remember the reason for the chosen people that God gave all these laws to. Working with the whole world didn't work. And so he chose them not to be the only ones in God's family but to demonstrate the blessings of being God's family so the rest of the world will want to be part of God's family too. And that responsibility has devolved on us. We've inherited it. Living God's way sets us free to be blessed. Just like following the road sets us free to go where we want to. Our key verse says, the Lord our God commanded us to obey all these decrees and to fear him so he can continue to bless us. If we don't follow the decrees, we block God from blessing us. So I want to ask you, how much do you know about the way God wants you to live? How much do you know about God's way? God's rules, God's laws. I'll tell you what, don't assume you know what it is unless you've read and studied God's word in the Bible. There's a whole lot more to it than just the golden rule. God's idea of good can be very different from the world's idea of good. Jesus said, you must be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. Part of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 48. Anybody here perfect? You cannot be perfect by your own efforts, but that doesn't excuse you. And so we've all messed up. But Jesus paid the price. 
when he died on the cross in our place. He rose from the dead so that we could follow him to heaven and he sends the Holy Spirit of God to live inside everyone who will acknowledge that they need that, throw themselves on God's mercy, ask to follow him. The Holy Spirit comes into our newly reborn human spirit and so by the Holy Spirit we can be not just forgiven but we can learn to be perfect in the sense that the Bible talks about. That is one of the main teachings of our Wesleyan Methodist heritage. I'm not going to take time to go into all of that right now. What I do want to reinforce is that God loves you. And therefore God wants to bless you. And our key verse says that you can block God's blessings in your life. Or you can allow them. Which are you doing? Let's say our key verse together. Deuteronomy 6, 24. The Lord our God commanded us to obey all these decrees and to fear him so he can continue to bless us and preserve our lives as he has done to this day. Deuteronomy 6, 24. pray it blessed you. Again, I'm Pastor David Wentz, and for more audio sermons, books, blog posts, and other goodies, please visit www.pastordavidwentz.com. That's spelled W-E-N-T-Z. And follow me on Facebook or LinkedIn. May God bless you as we do Christianity together. See you next time.